Welcome to Do Better Research, a learning-focused podcast about research methods. My name is Dr. Suzanne Albury, and I'll be guiding you through research methods to become a better researcher, both for academic study and professional practice. In this episode on visual methods, we're going to think about a range of different visual methods that we can use in research. We'll think about what it adds to qualitative methods more generally, and how we might incorporate one or more into the design of a project. I'm also really excited to introduce our two guests for this week, Dr Jan Wilcox, one of the Suffolk Business School's fantastic lecturers and self-proclaimed portfolio workers in areas of education and real estate, and the inspiring Dr Suzanne Coulshaw, a research fellow in the School of Education at the University of Hertfordshire. Let's start by thinking about a definition for visual methods. According to SAGE, visual methods are the use of visual images and technologies such as video, film, photography, art, drawing and sculpture in qualitative social research to both produce and represent knowledge. In practice, this means incorporating some kind of visual imagery into the design of a research project. This might mean asking research participants to respond to a visual image such as a photograph or a video or asking them to produce a piece of visual work in response to a question. Suzanne highlights in her interview that she is not asking her participants to create art, which is an important distinction, and we'll hear more about why later. Our two guests this week highlight a number of interesting possibilities for visual methods, and some challenges that we will need to explore. So without any more preamble, let's get into them. So Jan, thank you for agreeing to uh, talk to me for this podcast. Can you tell me what it is you enjoy about doing research? I think I'm naturally a really nosy person and um, I really enjoy talking to people and hearing about their life experiences and what they've done and why they've done it. And um, research is a really good, valid reason for being nosy, I guess. I love that. You just, you're just nosy and you want to know things. I think so. I mean, it's weird because I think before I even really started down a research route, I was always quite um, interested in people. You know, I meet people on holiday and and my family always tell me off saying, oh, God, you know, you can't ask them that. And I think, well, why not? If they don't want to tell me, they don't have to. So I think it's generally a yeah part of my personality. So I love finding out about different people, different things. Yeah, that really. Not a very academic answer, I know, but that's the truth. <laughs> No, but it's still a really good answer. So can you just give a brief outline about what you did before you became an academic? Oh, I still don't think I've become one yet, Suzanne. But um, yeah, I, um, <laughs> I suppose, well, I first started, it's, always, it's a really hard question to answer. My main career, I was, my last first, uh, my last full-time job was, I was a fund manager in the city for a property fund for an American investment bank. And to get to there, I'd done a slightly circuitous route. I never meant to become a chartered surveyor. I just kind of fell into it by accident. I knew I wanted to do something that meant I didn't sit at my desk all day. So ironic that I've ended up being an academic, I suppose. I had a kind of 20 20-year career working in the real estate industry, which was very lucrative. And then I had children and kind of needed to think again. And funnily enough, I was marking a dissertation this morning from a surveyor all about women in surveying. And um, when I became a fellow, I think 0.3% of surveyors were fellows. And the latest research says it's now gone up to 4%. And that's exciting that we've reached as high as 4% of RICS fellows being women but slightly off the point so yeah I fell into it by accident it was a very good career for me very lucrative and gave me choices um, and it meant that I was able to kind of pursue an academic career for my second career. I don't think there's anything I've seen as a first career and a second career these days is there it all kind of feeds into one another? Yes I suppose you're right although um, perhaps because I come from a very old-fashioned industry originally um, it's still very much seen as a career you either do it or you don't and and you also get very kind of focused on a specific part of it and I spent my whole career fighting to to remain broad in terms of my coverage um, so yeah I guess that's why I still see it as two careers but you're probably right it is all changing. So what has been your favourite research project so far? Well, my favourite is also my least favourite, is that allowed, um, which has to be my, my PhD. It was my favourite because it was something I felt really passionate about. I felt that it was about 
basically the experiences of portfolio workers, i.e. people who have multiple jobs, not because they have to, but because they choose to. I'm trying to write an article with my uh, former supervisors at the moment, and and the heading title of the article is something that was said to me when I was working um, at another university. I walked by and, and one gentleman turned to the gentleman next to him and said, who's that? And they said, oh, that's just a temp. And I was so annoyed. I almost went over and kind of grabbed them and said, actually, I'm not just a temp. I'm a charter surveyor. I'm this, I'm that. But obviously I didn't. But that kind of annoyed me that, that people, because in that particular role, it was only a very small part of what I did. I was just a temp. That was who people saw me as being. So that kind of is what the research was about. And I guess it was my favourite research because I interviewed a whole range of people from 27 different industries And there were still these common feelings that we had. And having felt like I was the only one experiencing all this, suddenly I realized, no, I'm not. There's loads of people out there, different ages, different professions, different backgrounds, all getting this same kind of feeling. So that's why it was my favorite. But it was my least favorite because I did it part time. It took me nearly five years and it was hard. <laughs> I mean, I, I loved the interviewing bit of it. I loved getting the data, but the writing up and the making it all fit together and the interpretation I found quite hard. So that was the least favourite bit of it. That's really interesting. I, I think a lot of people feel when they come to doing a research project that it can become both their favourite and least favourite part of whatever course they're taking. When we talk about undergraduate and postgraduate students, you know, they look forward to the opportunity to do something just for them, that's something they're really interested in, but the actual process part of it is a real challenge. Yeah, because I think I could say that my favourite was my master's dissertation, because at the time I was working for the Crown Estate on Regent Street, and I did a topic that was really relevant to the way we managed the asset. And it was my favourite in terms of it was so structured, so it was all quantitative, it all fitted neatly into boxes, and it had a purpose, and it was a much easier process. So that one was my favourite piece of research in terms of the process. So it depends on how you're, you're looking at it really doesn't it it really does so when it comes came to your research project I'm talking about your your PhD dissertation here I think Mm -hmm. that you use some visual methods in so what visual methods did you use in in your PhD project well basically I included um, sketches when I I was interviewing a lot of people who I'd never met before um, which was you know it's a whole nother story but up until then I'd only ever interviewed people who were job applicants and of course it's such a different kind of approach and and I did a sort of pilot interview and I realized I was kind of grilling this poor individual just as I would somebody applying for a job (laughs) so I thought I've I've got to do something that's going to kind of break the ice and calm me down and make me a little bit more open to to what they're saying and um I did a a research methods course and they talked about visual methods and I thought, well, I know, I'll just get them to do a little sketch because one of the things I was asking them to do was um, talk about their various roles. And I think during the process, I had between five and seven different jobs and I would always have to kind of count on my fingers what they were. And I thought if I start them off with a sketch, at least they'll remember all of the roles they have. And also there might be some kind of deeper meaning in those sketches um, because I was worried in interviews we tend to present our best self um, so I thought if I started with this kind of sketch it might relax people more they they for a start I wouldn't be kind of gazing into their eyes straight away with people I didn't know and it was actually really interesting because it ranged from some people who kind of created the sketch at the beginning um, who did lots of different colors who did lots of variety who then went back and added to it as we went through to one individual who said oh no I'm not doing that no that's ridiculous here's my business card that says what I do um but yeah the purpose was it was twofold I suppose it was to relax them at the beginning of the interview and to relax me to make me not sort of grill them like I did like I would a job candidate um and also to give me a bit more depth because I just felt all of my previous research had been quantitative I decided to you know go into qualitative for a bit of a change um and I thought interviews are just not deep enough they they can hide an awful lot of things and I felt visual methods was a way of sort of teasing out maybe meanings that they weren't aware of or meanings that they didn't want to talk about um and so it proved to be on some of them 
That's really interesting. And I love what you said at the start, that it wasn't just about the participants. It was to help calm you down. And you felt like you were grilling the participants because you were nervous. Hmm. Um, and actually using that sketch was a, a, a bit of like an icebreaker as well. Definitely. You know, and, and some of them are saying, oh, I'm really rubbish at drawing. And then they'd go back and they'd sort of draw the detail of the hair on the individual they'd drawn and that kind of thing. It It, it just gave a focus that meant it wasn't just two of us face to face looking into each other's eyes kind of thing I was going to say and it showed some things that that I just hadn't expected and and obviously you know I know nothing about analyzing visual um artifacts um but there was some real basic I remember one was a psychotherapist by profession so I was very nervous about trying to you know read too much into his sketch but um he did one and this big piece of paper and he'd covered three quarters of it in great detail with his sketching and left this big blank space and I and I said to him you know I'm not going to try and analyze that you know particularly in view of your profession but what what do you think that big space represents and he said why so I don't know he said it could be that when I gave up when I retired because he'd retired early and he said, when I retired, I wanted more time to spend on my music. And then my wife got ill. She retired. I had to go back to work. So it could represent the music that I hoped I was going to do. Um, or it could represent the fact that I'm not quite happy with my portfolio at the moment and there are new opportunities out there. So he kind of helped analyze the sketch himself. And he hadn't done it deliberately. It was only when we talked about it, he realized that that maybe was what it represented. That's really interesting. And it I, I'm guessing in terms of the practicalities, it wasn't, we think about sketches and we sort of think about a doodle at the size of, side of a margin, but I'm guessing it was quite a big piece of paper that they were given. Yeah, I gave them an A, uh, A3 piece of paper. Um, and, and again, it was really interesting the way people used it so differently. I had one person who um, they're sort of, job that was their passion didn't give them a steady enough income to get a mortgage so they'd had to take another role that they hated but it was their regular income and totally unconsciously because she didn't notice it till I spotted it at the end her kind of job that was her passion took up nearly all of the page it was multicolored. it was vibrant it was exciting and then the job that she'd taken just to get a mortgage was black just plain black and really boring Um, and she didn't even realize she'd done it and as I say, I'm no expert in analysis, but it was so clear that this was what she really liked and this one she really did not like. <laughs> that is really fascinating. I'm just thinking, you said also said that you you came from a kind of a quantitative background. You'd done quantitative research in your PhD. You decided you wanted to do something a bit different, so you used, used qualitative research. Mm. And this isn't necessarily a question that I had written out for you. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But what challenges did you find from being more quantitatively minded and moving into more qualitative, doing more qualitative <laughs> research and analysing more qualitative research? Yeah, um, I think the thing, sorry, I always have to tell things by examples, but the, the, the point when I realised that I was going to have a problem with qualitative was when I had a, a philosophy um, session and I sat down and the person leading it said, um, so what's that in front of you? And I said, what, this, the table? He said, yes. He said, how do you know it's a table? I said, well, you know, it's got legs. I've got all my stuff on it. Of course it's a table. He said, but what makes it a table? And then I had to go into this whole debate about why it was a table. And I thought, oh God, I'm never going to be able to do this because my (laughs) biggest issue with qualitative research was, you know, and I actually said it when I first met my supervisor. I said, well, how will you know that I won't just go and make up that people have said this? What's the proof? Because when you do quants, there's there's kind of it's facts and and you well I suppose you could make up quantitative but it is a fact you can measure stuff you could you you get figures to support it but with qualitative it was this issue of well how do we know and and you know I, I understand now that obviously having gone through it there's no way you can make it all up you have to go through the research properly but then how do you know that what I interpret is what they were saying and that kind of brings us back to visual methods because although interviewing was my sort of core method it was supported with visual methods um, and also some textual analysis just to kind of give more weight to the interpretation that I gave to the information I was getting so I think that was my challenge the challenge was am I really getting to what the 
I don't want to say the truth because that has all other connotations, but am I really interpreting this correctly? And I think that's the reason for using perhaps supporting methods rather than just one. It's a really good point as well, because it can be really difficult, can't it, when you've got a research participant to adequately represent what it is they've told you Mm. and represent it also in a way that doesn't diminish what they've said or diminish their truth. Exactly. And then... What I ended up with in in my PhD was I ended up with a typology and I gave them the opportunity. I actually took that typology back to them. I kind of put them into different categories and then I didn't share with them what category I'd put them in. I just sent them the typology and said, which category would you put yourselves in? And then I I can't remember what it was, but it was something like... 27 out of, no, I had more than that, 37 out of 40 had similar categories to me or exactly the same categories. So that gave me some confidence that what I was thinking is also what they were thinking. A nice bit of triangulation there as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, And as I say, with the sketches, I often pointed things out to them and said, well, what do you think that means? And then they kind of paused and thought about, you know, what they'd sketched and came up with their own interpretations of it. Um, So it became a kind of reflexive space for them because they just dashed this sketch off without thinking. And it was only when we looked at it together that they began to to try, well, do my job for me, really, analyse what they were saying. That's a really good point, though, and something I I, I really want to highlight is that you gave them the opportunity to pause and the, the space to consider what it is they'd created so it wasn't just bam one question, bam the next question. You know, trying to get through the interview as quickly as possible. You you gave them the space to to do this this little sketch, but also consider what it meant for them. Yeah, and I mean, I had one guy, and he did it all, and he kind of drew the links between his various roles. Because one of the things that came out of it is that even in really diverse roles, there is a common kind of theme running between them with with my roles that were all very diverse it was helping people with this particular guy he'd drawn it all out then he used a different color pen and kind of grouped it into his main themes and then at the end of the interview he said do you know what he said I never sit and think about what I do and this has been so useful for me it's triggered off a couple of other ideas about where I'm going to go next and I thought well that was really good because it meant he got something out of it as well as me that's really interesting um, I want to go back to a point that you made a little while ago. You said that you had one um, participant who basically just just said, no, he's not going to do that. And he handed you his business card, mm-hmm. which I think in itself is an interesting visual representation of his his portfolio career. How did you deal with that situation? Uh, I said, that's absolutely fine. We continued talking. um, And then I kind of created a sketch during the interview of his roles. And then towards the end, when we were all a little bit more relaxed, I said, you know, while you've been talking, I've just kind of put this together. Is this how you perceive what you do? And then, of course, he couldn't resist it, picked up the pen and made a few amendments to show me where I'd got it wrong. I just, you know, maybe not the right thing to do, but I, I felt I needed to get him to think a little bit more about it because his business card wasn't what he did at all his business card was his key job but he had a whole two day a week job that didn't feature on his business card oh that's just fascinating isn't it that this this person decided that it wasn't for him and then realized it could be for him almost throughout the interview and well, I think it was all it was about his identity. His identity was his core identity was his business card. That was who he wanted to be. But then for various reasons, he'd taken on a couple of other roles that um, and afterwards I looked on his LinkedIn profile and um, he had put one of his other roles on that, but ignored two further roles. So it was definitely about what he wanted to present. Um, but yeah, he couldn't resist just getting in amongst the kind of sketch I'd put together to correct what I'd done. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about people wanting to present a particular view of themselves in an interview, even in a kind of a research interview. There is going to be some level of um, mediating yourself as you're as you're talking to your re- the researcher, as you're or as your as the researcher talking to the participant. Yeah, and this sort of element of performativity, wanting to present, almost they're they're quite eager to please you and tell you what you want to know. So I think you have to be very careful about um, what you ask, because sometimes they say to me, is that what you wanted? Is that the answer you wanted? And and I say, well, I don't want a particular answer. This is totally whatever you want to tell me. Um, 
so yeah and as I say I think using multiple methods is is just one way of, of getting below that or getting behind that identity that they want to present to you. And did you come up with any um, against any other challenges in using the sketches and using that quite non-traditional qualitative methodology? Well, I think it, it was the issue of because when you do interviews, um, there's plenty of advice on coding and that is relatively straightforward. Although it is your interpretation, there's a lot of a lot of literature to help you with coding your interview data. That the main issue with the sketches was um, being very, very clear about how you had interpreted, why you had interpreted, how you check that interpretation. And there are there are a couple of visual methods texts to assist with that, but I felt the best way of doing it was to make sure in the interview situation, although a couple of them actually, I did go back afterwards by email and say, you did this, was there a particular reason why you did this? Um, so I think the biggest challenge was was kind of underpinning with with proper support the conclusions or the interpretations I'd drawn from it. How did your supervisor help you explore and develop your methods and methodology? Because obviously you said you wanted to use something else, something a little bit more deeper to underpin your, your interview data, but did was your supervisor familiar with the method or did they help how did they help support that? Um I don't think, I don't know what your PhD was like, but for me, I felt they just let me lead. Um, and I think the only, not the only thing they did, they were very much, you know, behind whatever it is I wanted to do. But I think the key thing they did for me is that I didn't interpret it deeply enough or in an enough detail. I had a tendency, which is probably my quantitative background, to say, you know, make my statement and say, and this is supported by all of these people who said this is this and this. And they were saying, well, yeah, but maybe there's another interpretation for that sketch. Maybe they're saying something else here. It's not necessarily what you've done. So I think it was just the thing they did for me actually throughout the PhD was everything I said to them, they just questioned it relentlessly which I guess is a really good way of making you think more deeply about what you've done. Very frustrating at the time. I just wanted someone to say, yes, that's fine. Off you go. It doesn't, <laughs> yeah. doesn't happen, does it? <laughs> yes, that's fine. No, it, it needs more work. No, you don't really get that as a PhD student. Ever. Even at the very end, it's never perfect, is it? But... <laughs> and I think the, the last question I've got for you, the last question I sent you, uh, Jan, is... What advice would you give to researchers and students um, who were wanting to use visual methods or were thinking about using visual methods in their research projects? Um, I think, which is something I did, I don't know whether it's good advice or not, but it worked for me. Um, something I did was I actually went and looked at some um, other people's theses that they'd use visual methods for. Not necessarily, nobody had used sketches, but some people had used photographs, um, some people had used... I suppose that's not really visual methods, but it was because they'd taken pictures of them. They'd used objects and taken photographs of those. So I just looked at other people that had used it. More than anything, it gave me the um, literature to look at to support the use of visual methods. Um, so I think that's quite a good starting point is, is to see other people who've used it and see how they've used it. And I honestly can't remember how I even came up with the sketch idea because no, nothing I looked at had done sketches. Um I think it's just something I tend to do. I uh, personally, you know, when I'm like when we're planning courses and that kind of thing, I'm very much a visual person, so I tend to sketch stuff out myself. So I guess it came from there. But I think for students, yeah, go and have a look at other people's dissertations or, or theses if you can get them in the library and, and pick out some that have used a visual method because it's a really quick way of getting to the literature and getting to useful literature. Um, beyond that, I just use your imagination, really, because the advantage of using something that not everybody else has used is that there are not um, so many experts in it. And interestingly, in my Viva, nobody, uh, nobody, neither of the examiners questioned any of my visual methods at all or any of my interpretations, which I think might have been nervousness on their part because it wasn't something they were expert in. That's really interesting, actually. That one just gets through because we don't really know much about that. <laughs> well, no, I was just thinking it's a good tip to students, isn't it? Use a method that people are not that familiar with and then perhaps you'll, um, well, apart from anything else, your supervisor or your marker will find it interesting. And also they might not have the depth of knowledge of all the um, 
you know core literature in that field so yeah it could be a good shout couldn't it do something that not everybody else does I don't think I'll advise students to do that (laughs) do it because it will really confuse the rest of the academic teaching team but think how interesting it would be to mark Suzanne it could work in your favour no absolutely it's true (laughs) those are all of my questions for you Jan good thank you very much that was really really interesting and Welcome to the podcast, Suzanne. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, you're very welcome. So I'm going to ask my first question, which I ask um, all of my guests, and that is, what do you enjoy about doing research? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think I'm uh, naturally a very curious person, and I, I think research is all about being curious and wanting to find things out or finding reasons for things or, or going with a hunch and seeking evidence. So um, I think... For me, it's that um, exploration. It's that curiosity. So, yeah, I, I love it. I love it. Even even when the going gets tough, when you're sitting there with your data and it feels like you're never going to emerge on the other side, I think actually uh, you're striving for something. So, um, yeah, it's it's an exploration, a curious exploration. That's a really good point. That's a really good um, answer, actually, because and it, it fits in with what a lot of the other um, my other guests have said is this, this sense of curiosity and just wanting mm. to know things. about things so um what has been your favorite research project to date and why well this isn't a difficult one to answer really because it's definitely the phd so although see the word favorite's interesting isn't it really because it wasn't a particularly cheerful subject um as you know but I'll just explain maybe for the listeners is um, I explored what it means to be struggling as a teacher and so that's not an inherently cheerful subject but um it was a favorite research project um because it, it meant a lot to me but I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that I was um privileged to have a like a prolonged period of time so I was a full-time researcher at the time um and could really kind of explore in a deep way that topic and the topic kind of belonged to me I I could choose it I could explore it in whatever way I wanted to and actually you know at, at the beginning of a PhD you think oh I'm supposed to be making a contribution to knowledge um and you think, ooh, ooh, ooh. but actually I think I did and so that that really does feel quite um quite humbling so I think it definitely the PhD because although as I say it was it was a, a difficult topic I think it's an important topic so um yeah yeah but then you see I did think about this question because my master's was interesting and without the master's I would never have done the PhD but it's yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna give my final answer is is the PhD thanks and I thought that was really interesting what you said about the idea not only the sense of achievement but the the sense of ownership you had mm-hmm. over the project it was it was entirely yours yep. yeah because I have spoken with other people who are part of a research project um team and I am now and I really enjoy that but um I think I did like the the kind of it being something I wanted to explore and having the freedom and you know my supervisors were amazing gave me the freedom to explore it um, I know we're going to be talking about visual methods in a minute and uh, you know that 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 opportunity to learn it was I was exploring but I was also learning I learned so much during the the doctoral journey that um you know it changes you as a person I think and so yeah it's been a it's been a really kind of important part of my life and yeah I feel very 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 grateful and just going back to something else you mentioned you said that your PhD came out of your master's yeah it was like a little nugget so um if I uh if I think back, there was a moment in one of the interviews for my master's, I was looking at lesson observations. So I was looking at what the impact of feedback is on um, a teacher's sense of self-efficacy. So when you're observed, um, as you will know in higher education as well, of course, um, when you're observed and you get feedback, and it's it, basically about what how you feel about that and, and what it makes you feel like. And I remember sitting with um, an interviewee and she said, well, I don't care what they say about me. I know my teaching is good enough. She said, but what about those teachers who are struggling? And it just kind of hung in the air. And I kept going back to it and thinking, yeah, I wonder what it is like for them. And it just became kind of the, I think it's Kinchelow who says uh, it's a point of entry. Uh, it was the point of entry for the next research, really, this idea of struggling. Because I think we, we, we think we know what it means. But if we really kind of stop and think, what does it actually feel like? Um, and that and that became, you know, what I focused on for nearly four years. So, uh, yeah, it's funny how, how things can kind of hold they're kind of in the air 
and I thought I've got to, I've got to run with this. It just felt so important. This this one little phrase that this that this woman mentioned, and it wasn't even about her. It was about other teachers. That's really interesting. So I, I had a similar thing with my with my masters. I was I was doing a piece of um, translation on a text, an ancient Maya text, actually. And I realised that it was so much bigger than I was. I, mm. I had time to make it, and it was so much more important than I thought. I could I could do justice in a master's, and that's kind of what led on to mm. deciding that's what my PhD was going to be in. Um, it's 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 funny how we kind of get sucked into the process ah, of yeah. research. You're sucked into research projects. It's a vortex. <laughs> it is, and once you start, it's very difficult to stop because the next thing leads mm. to the next thing leads to the next thing, and then suddenly. Uh, you're 20 years in or 10, 10, 20 years into a research career and you know, don't really remember how you got there. <laughs> nice journey to be on though. Yes, absolutely. So yes, we are going to come on to visual methods and I know you have a really, really interesting visual method that you use. So can you um, outline your area of expertise yeah. um, for us? Yeah, sure. So I used collage and um, I think the word collage conjures up certain images in people's minds they may remember having magazines and glue sticks and things and sticking things down now that is collage that you know that has its own place but I used a particular form of collage which is quite different from that so um, I had a selection of arts and crafts materials um, wonderful different textures and different materials hard and soft and bendable and breakable and all that kind of thing I had a box of those things and uh, what my participants were able to do was to have almost like a canvas underneath so a piece of sugar paper a large piece of sugar paper and then they could place um, these arts and crafts materials to express a particular experience so as I said my my um, PhD research was about um, struggling as a teacher so the question was or the statement in a way was um, can you create a collar to express what it feels like to be struggling as a teacher and they used these uh, materials to express that experience in a way that was visual so that and I think that the particular uh, form of collage that I use allows people to move things as their thinking develops so I remember a couple of participants literally just plopping things down on the sugar paper and then moving them around. So moving them to the top left corner or taking things away or, you know, moving things up the page. Um, and I captured that as they were doing it. So it's as much about the process as the product. So you have a final product, which you can photograph, but it's also the process of creating that collage, which allows people to produce this uh, metaphorical product. And it kind of reflects their experience back to them. And how did you how did you capture that process? So you talked about sort of capturing the the movement, but how did you do that? Mm. Well, on, uh, for this particular study, I didn't use video. I have since, so I'll talk about that in a minute. But for my study, I audio recorded, which is a funny thing to do when someone's moving things about because you get funny noises in the background. But I decided that video recording people um, would have been maybe one thing too too many because it's an unfamiliar. It is an unfamiliar method for for lots of people. And uh, although I think you can be quite playful with it, of course, it was a sensitive subject talking about struggling. And so um, what I did was I kind of sat uh, we were in people's I was in people's homes and so they were creating them normally on their dining tables and I sat to the side of the dining table and observed and noted anything down um, while they were creating their collage so particularly uh, one of my participants and this is a pseudonym so I'm happy saying it um, Catherine put a piece of blue felt on her collage and she kept moving it up and up and up um, from the bottom of the page to the kind of the middle of the page and I noted that down and we talked about it afterwards and she hadn't even realized she'd done it and when I tell you that um, what that blue piece of felt um, symbolizes is the what she called the shark infested waters of accountability that she's operating in. I think that gives a very strong image, doesn't it, of the waters kind of not just lapping at your feet, but rising, rising, rising. Um, and that that rising process was her moving that felt almost subconsciously, actually, because she said she didn't realise she'd done it up the page. So, um, yeah, I have uh, I've done a project since where we have videoed. It wasn't quite such a sensitive topic, and we, we obviously we've got consent and everything, and, and we set up cameras on tripods, video cameras on tripods, and that does help capture the process a little bit more. But in in my research, I felt it was perhaps just one thing too many so I just took notes and and kind of referred to them and you talk about how that, that it was it's a playful process mm. do you think the the playfulness 
helped in any way? Well, I think those who really engaged with it brought a sense of playfulness with them and were able to almost suspend um, kind of linguistic thinking. So I think that's one of the things about collage that I like. It allows you to engage in a different way of thinking. And that's just not not just me saying that. There's a literature that, that kind of backs that up. So when we think linguistically, and I am a languages teacher, you know, I love words and I love language. We, we think in kind of linear grammatical structures. So we start with a subject and then a verb and then an object. Normally, if we talk in full sentences, for example, when you engage in kind of visual thinking, you are able to, to put things down and move them around. And one of the teachers was a DT teacher, so a design technology teacher, so quite creative um, kind of by nature. And he said, well, I don't know where to start with this. So he just put a load of stuff in the middle and then and then started moving it around. And it was really playful the way he was engaging with it. Others, um, interestingly, a head teacher, I don't know if that's significant or not, a male head teacher, uh, found it very difficult to engage with, really struggled to kind of make a start and and then said oh I want some music on or something this is too quiet I don't like the quiet because they don't necessarily need to talk while they're doing it they could but um not everybody did so I think and one uh, one in my pilot study refused to do it so um he said oh, I don't think I can do this and what was really interesting was that I said, well, that's OK. Don't you know, don't worry. I'm not, not going to force you to do it. He said, well, I can't express what it means to be struggling. He said, but what I would like to do is to express what it looks like to not be struggling. So he started creating this very beautiful collage with all these lovely images and colours and textures of him and his students going on this learning journey. Um, and remember, they're not stuck down. And this, I think, is significant. Um, he then said, oh, yeah, and then the door opens and my senior manager comes in or my line manager comes in to see what I'm doing. And he whisked the piece of sugar paper from underneath all of these beautiful um, craft materials that weren't stuck down. He whipped that piece of sugar paper from underneath and uh, and there was a mess left on the floor. And he said, and I tell you what, that is what struggling looks like. So he went in it in a playful way, in a way, um, and arrived at a very powerful picture, which was a mess, um, to express his his experience of struggling. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question about playfulness, but uh, it was very unfamiliar for a lot of people. It, I mean, it, it is unfamiliar, and you know, teachers and lecturers and you know academics and and students maybe are, are used to talking aren't they they used to listen to me I'm yakking on um we're used to talking and actually what we're doing is putting people in a in a discomfort zone for a short period of time albeit in a safe space you know you build up a rapport with your students and uh, your uh, participants and your students but in this case with your participants and you want them to feel safe but actually what you're asking them to do can feel quite uncomfortable so um it's unfamiliar you know it was unfamiliar and and in a way I think it added it I know that it definitely added to the richness of the stories and the and the data that I collected. It's absolutely fascinating particularly when you started talking about one of your participants refused to do it and then and then he kind of got into it and he he did do it but he yeah. you said he came at it from a very different direction and it was it was kind of um a struggle for him to be able to articulate why he couldn't do it until he did it. I think that's that's one of the really beauties of kind of creativity and using these kind of visual methods, isn't it? Is that um, mm. people look at it and go, "Oh, that, I, I, that's, I'm just uncomfortable with this. I don't know how to do it. Um, I can't do it." And then actually, eventually, you can kind mm. of coach them into feeling comfortable enough to do something. Yeah, I mean, it, it, of course, these methods are used with children a lot. I know Dawn Manet down in Cardiff uses these kind of methods a lot with children, and and I'd be fa- I haven't done I haven't used them with children, but I think it would be fascinating to to see how how younger children, for example, kind of maybe just embrace it without thinking too much. I think some of you know we adults we maybe think too much about it and and have lost that sense of playfulness. So um, yeah, interesting stuff. Absolutely. I'd like to come back to something else that you mentioned, because um, and I, this wasn't one of the questions I actually sent to you, and I do apologise for that, that I'm kind of blindsiding you. But you talk, you talked about um, being a teacher beforehand, and I just wondered, you, you've you used these visual methods and they're very different. I wondered what made you decide to use um, visual methods and actually how you felt that you could interpret them, not necessarily being an artist or being trained in mm. visual representation. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I, I don't even consider myself particularly artistic. I'll, I'll say that straight away. Um, so, 
I have been asked this question before, and I honestly cannot remember the moment at which I decided to use um, collage in, in my research. I know that it's a speciality at the School of Education where I'm based at the University of Hertfordshire. Let's get a plug in for them. Um, they have used collage a lot with their um, kind of initial teacher um, trainee teachers in their initial teacher education programs um, and in the leadership um center there so um they're kind of they've got a friendly disposition towards collage already but i i know me i i won't have just listened to my supervisor saying oh why don't you use this and i would have sat there and said oh yes of course uh, that's just not who i am so um i i read around the subject and then i decided to give it a go myself so i set up um my desk in my office uh, with a video camera because i thought i need to feel observed when i'm doing this because although i wasn't going to be videoing my t- participants potentially I would have been there so I was going to be the observer and I set up um, I got a box from the School of Education and brought it home and created um, uh, a collage about what it means to be struggling as a teacher now my PhD is not classically autobiographical but there's a lot of my experience of struggling in there as well and I did it and it just it just blew me away I it reflected back to me things that I hadn't necessarily um, surfaced um, by talking to anyone about the experience that I'd had in a particularly um, toxic environment. So so I found, oh my goodness, you know, the potential of, of revealing something. Of course, that's got ethical dimensions to it as well, because you're asking people to reveal stuff that they may not have realised that they were going to reveal. So um, we can maybe talk about that as well. Um, but your question about interpreting things. Now, I have never maintained that by using an arts-based or visual method, that they are creating a piece of art. So, um, and I refer to Robertson Woods, who talk about the fact that um, collage allows you to create something that is arts-based, but it isn't a piece of art, and it doesn't depend on your kind of artistic competence. So there's a literature out there that says uh, you could use drawing, for example, or painting or, or, or other arts forms as a method, but they do depend a little bit on kind of um, artistic ability. And um, I didn't want people to be reminded, for example, of their experience of art, positive or negative at school, and to think, oh my goodness, I'm going to dread doing this. Um, I think it was more, I I haven't used the phrase crafts-based, but I do wonder whether this is more crafts-based than arts-based. So maybe if I was writing my um, thesis now I'd call it a craftspace method rather than an artspace method because it's not a piece of art I was asked that in my viva actually to what extent is this artspace and I gave a similar answer I said well it's not a piece of art but people are being creative with arts and crafts materials and it provides you know a visual expression of of a lived experience that's really interesting so just the idea that it, you don't need to be kind of a, a trained art historian or artist to be able to either create or interpret these things well as far as the analysis is concerned I did a lot of there's not very much out there about the analysis of of kind of um visual methods and so I I um, was able to reference a lot of the literature from kind of um, visual methods, creative methods, arts-based methods, so photography and, and other kind of elicitation methods. And I, ca- I did come up with a, a bit of an analytical framework where you kind of have to be careful not to over-interpret. So um, if I give an example of um, one of my participants used, she didn't use the pot of Play-Doh as Play-Doh, she used it as something heavy to to um, kind of symbolise the pressure from above. So she placed a pot of Play-Doh above her head, but she's a middle leader, and this was to signify the um, the head teacher putting pressure on her, seemingly. And the pot of Play-Doh was pink. Now there was yellow, there was all kinds of colours. So I said, "Is the colour?" pink significant and she said oh no it isn't really because my manager is a man um and so there is a danger i think of over interpreting and you could say well because it's in the top left and here in the western world we read from left to right so the first thing you glance at is top left there is a literature that says is is it is important where things are placed um i didn't go too far into that because i just didn't feel that one i needed to particularly and two that certainly wasn't my expertise but i think it is 
it is interesting to see where things are placed in relation to other things, but I think you have to kind of hold back and not overinterpret um, what other people were were kind of doing when they placed things. But if you place something in the middle and it's the first thing you place there, and it stays there, I think that is interesting. I'm not going to say it's hugely significant, but it's interesting that it's in the centre. And you can, of course, have a conversation with the collage creator and say, oh, is it significant that you put that in the middle? And they may say, oh, no, it's just the first thing I saw. I think that's, that's a really good point, though, actually, sort of talking through mm, the work mm. or talking through the method with the participant. Yeah. And that's absolutely fine. And asking them questions of, do you think that's significant? Mm. Or did you play? Did you use that colour for a particular yeah, reason? Yeah. And that's absolutely fine, because it gets them to act a little reflexively. It gets mm. them to be a bit critical about their own work. But it also means, as you said, you're not going to risk over-interpretation, yeah. Yeah. which I think is really, really important. Um, but was there any other kind of points that you wanted to highlight about any challenges of using this method? Well, I think I think as I, I hinted at the ethical dilemma, if you like, or the ethical tension. So, um, I mean, asking people to reveal, you know, an experience of struggling was always going to be fairly sensitive. So the ethical approval um, was rigorous, rightly so. Um, I did provide um, signposting to um, an organisation that can kind of uh, listen to teachers if they wanted to kind of take take any of the issues further because you know I'm not a counsellor and, and didn't set myself up as one um, as it was actually interestingly uh, people did reveal things I think well I'll never know will I but I'm going to say this uh, they did reveal things that they might not have revealed um, if we hadn't used collage but but a lot of them said at the end that they'd found it quite emotional they did find the process quite emotional but they found it quite therapeutic as well so in a way it was a it was a way to kind of surface this experience and and see it and work through it so um so yes there were ethical tensions if you like i also think because you're then faced with um visual and verbal data so yes you know it was done within a research interview so you've got the verbal data from the interview and you've got the visual data from the collage there is a challenge there to kind of intermingle those two sets of data because you know people are inherently ambiguous i think and uh, myself included of course and um you know if if you're presenting something in your collage and then you're talking about your experience in a different way there is a challenge there of how to intermingle that data um, and actually what what i did was i I embraced the complexity of the experience and you know and and both both expressions are valid um and and I think one one final thing I'd like to say about um the collage data is that I never saw it as supplementary now there's me being a linguist again I think there's a huge difference between complementary and supplementary supplementary uh, gives precedence to one other thing and I didn't want the collage to be a kind of an add-on to the interviews I wanted them to complement each other and I'm sitting here with like my two hands as if I'm holding a balance I wanted the visual data to be of equal value um, to the to the verbal data um, and so every time I was kind of analyzing anything I had a photograph of the collage in front of me as I was writing up the story so that I never forgot what the collages looked like while I was listening back to the transcripts of the interviews so um, I think there is a challenge of intermingling but I think the stories are all the richer for the inclusion of, of, a, of a method like this. That's great thank you um, and the final question that I have for you is what advice would you give to researchers wanting to use visual methods in their own research? Yeah, okay. So so my first, I mean, it's, it, I say this to anybody about any research method, but I would particularly say, does the method fit the research question? So that's something that people really, really need to, to think about quite carefully. Um, I, I would say that um, have a go yourself. So, I mean, I did, and it really kind of helped me put myself in the position of a participant. I then analysed my own um, collage. So I think um, well, if you think that it's the right way, then give it a go. Um, read quite widely. Um, if there isn't very much about collage, for example, read about similar methods. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, be curious. I mean, it goes back to what we said right at the beginning, be curious. Um it might be messy. I mean, qualitative research tends to be pretty messy anyway. It'll it'll be pretty messy, but it could be quite pretty and it could be quite significant. So um, give it a go, I think. Give it a go. <laughs> just, just throw yourself in. Give yeah, it a go. Yeah. Well, uh, to be honest, I mean, a lot of um, researchers at master's or whatever level um, haven't conducted interviews. So, so if you're scared of doing an interview, well, that's okay. You know, think about it and uh, think about the questions. Well, 
you don't need to be any more scared of doing collage or doing drawing or sandboxing or you know photography or whatever because you know if there's a first time for everything isn't there you know writing a transcript of an interview is difficult or can be difficult and then analyzing that thematically can be difficult I think what I'm saying is don't look at it as any more difficult or, or complex than than any other more traditional shall we say research method that's fantastic thank you so much oh you're very welcome what a pleasure i could talk for britain on this both of my guests talked about some participants not wanting to engage with their chosen method Jan spoke about one interviewee outright refusing, and Suzanne talked about a participant who hesitated and said, I don't think I can do that. You'll have heard, though, that both Jan and Suzanne found ways to overcome that, whether by coaxing them to engage with the researcher's doodle or letting them approach the task from a different direction. Remember, in research, we must always be considerate and respectful of our participants' willingness to engage and allow them space to feel comfortable and safe. Most of our participants will be strangers to us, and us to them, at the start of this process. In qualitative research, this has the chance to change, for us to become familiar and partners in the research process. There is, to some extent, flexibility in the data gathering process. If a participant doesn't answer a question on a survey, for example, that tends to be it. But in qualitative research, we can explore why an interviewee has chosen to opt out, as it were, giving us rich and perhaps unanticipated data. One of the big challenges any qualitative researcher must face is not to overinterpret the data. Even in an interview, we mustn't read too much into a long pause or a laugh in a strange place. The same goes for visual methods. What's really interesting about the creation of a physical artefact, however, is the opportunity to ask your participant questions about it. It's absolutely fine to ask them if they think something is significant, whether that be the colours used, or the type of objects, or the placement or layout. We must also remember to respect our participants' answers. If they say it's not significant, for example, we shouldn't then attempt to undermine that and suggest that it might be. Like anything, practice makes, well, if not perfect, then at least better. Suzanne spoke about testing out her method on herself, and Jan spoke about her pilot interviews. This practice is important, even if it's only on yourself or one or two participants, and it's the same with any kind of data collection. Practice helps make sure the methods are suitable, but also that they're clear, both to yourself and what you're trying to find out, and to your participants. Each year in a class I teach on market research, I ask students where they were born. It's a fairly simple question. Think about your answer now. Now think, did you answer with your hometown, or country, or county? Perhaps you answered with the name of the hospital. Any of those answers would have been correct but a researcher couldn't then adequately compare those answers. Ipswich is a very different type of answer, for example, to Nigeria. Finally, unless you have the research experience, you haven't done the kind of interviews and focus groups used in research before. As Jan said, she's used to conducting job interviews, but research interviews were very different, and she found herself grilling her participants in her pilots. Suzanne made the point well that using or incorporating a visual method, if appropriate, can require no more research, planning and testing than any other method, so you shouldn't feel any more nervous. I'll leave some links in the show notes for where you might go next to explore using visual methods in your own research projects. <laughs>